the thing I want to point out is to give you a little bit of sort of wisdom of Buddhism on such things as the meaning of the Vajrakila, the bell, all tantric philosophy of Vajra. This means immutable power. There's two types of Vajras, this one here, and then the Visva Vajra, which has four prongs to it, or which is the masculine form of those four prongs in the feminine direction. And if you want to understand the basic meanings of this particular symbol, you read Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism. The Purba, also known as the Kila in Sanskrit, normally has in the centre, this one doesn't, a Vajra. And often on the head, also a Vajra. There's three different symbols that normally are given on top of the Purba. This here is a ritual dagger. It shouldn't be moved around like I move it. Every object has its sanctity, its innermost purpose, its power, its potency. We are blessed in this space here. We have a superabundant amount of very old ritual implements. Many of these implements we have here have been handed and handled by lamas for centuries, filled with their mantras, with their potency. This deity in front of you is called Vajrakila Huruka. I was going to give you, and I thought I'd give you a teaching today, a little bit on the symbolism of Buddhist art. It's full of meaning. It's You can go into the old library or many other Buddhist libraries and you'll find tome after tome after tome after tome on Buddhist religious art. When you look around here, you begin to see it appearing. Their tankas, their mandalas, their statues. Every bit of it has meaning. They don't put anything on paper without real meaning. And when a Buddhist artist paints a tanka, they this is a genuine Buddhist artist, not the the modern day schools. It's done with mantras. It's done with ceremony. It's done with the proper visualization. They've studied the text and they are painting the text, the tantra on the tanka. They do it with love. They do it with devotion. And the last thing that is painted is the eyes. And only when the eyes are painted is it empowered. And on the back are the seed beaches, often om ahum, or something of this nature to do with the tanka itself. The whole thing is a ritual, the whole thing is a ceremony. I'm not talking about these modern ones now that that, uh, do it for money, I'm talking about the genuine artists.
those that are part of the tradition. Any of you that have been to Tibet or where the Tibetans are or any of these Buddhists that are following their rituals, their teachings, you find how deeply respectful they are for what they do. And each of you must begin to live within the aura of the divinity, of the sound, of the ritual, of the purpose that you live in, and not to allow these unclean, impure thoughts to do with the material world and all of your emotions to override your ritualistic self, your devotion to divinity, the mantra, the mandala, the purpose that you are part of the mandala of. What is it that makes a yogi develop yogic powers? It's called tapas. It's the type of yogic austerities that the being manifests. Mantra, mudra, religious observation, ritual at all costs, all the time ritual, over and over again doing the same types of meditation, the same types of austerities, the same similar postures, breathing in, breathing out, sometimes counting the breaths according to instructions from the master, taking special food, abstaining from food, cleaning the forts, using mantras over and over again, doing special visualizations, tapas. And the group also, such as this, manifests a similar yogic austerity as a group. And that is the power of a group. It brings into existence far greater energies than the individual can do themselves. This group here are being trained to develop what in Sanskrit is called Siddhi, psychic powers. They're greater cities, they're lesser cities. You're developing the inner hearing so you can listen to the masters, so you can listen to the divas, so you can listen to your own higher self. That's why a Buddha's ear lobes are long. Because the Buddha has developed this inner hearing. It's one of your cities. Most of you have developed this type of inner hearing. You can listen. But also you can listen to the dark brotherhood as well as the light. And you are trained how to avoid listening to such entities. Another city which some of you don't yet have understood as a city, is simply your group love, your group service, that you love each other and that you work to help each other become enlightened beings, to overcome their barriers to light, to overcome the darkness within them, to overcome their critical mind, to overcome their loving mind, to overcome their desire mind, their will of mind, to overcome their monkey mind, 
the wrongly faceted mind, mouse of mind, slugs of mind. You can go on with all of these emotional characteristics of disciples that a group such as this is always working to fix them up. Because this group love is an inchward understanding of what the other needs. And they don't have to be told to help the other person. It is automatic, unconditional, spontaneous, an instinct. And that's the difference between a high initiate and a lower initiate. This instinct to help, the instinct to love, the instinct to serve, don't have to think about it. You don't have to do mantras. You don't have to say, I am going to wake up and serve. You simply wake up and serve. This is another city. The city of the heart awakening. It is the whole basis of the Bodhisattva path. The younger ones... Spiritually speaking, they don't have this instinct. What do they have? Selfishness, separativeness. They always think of things in terms of themselves first. They struggle with concepts of giving. They struggle with concepts of sharing their resources with others. They struggle with concepts of opening up their hearts and minds. They want to take for themselves. They want to hide and veil. Of course you can only give and reveal to those that are awakened in the heart, that spontaneously give and want to serve. We don't have to think of being bodhisattvas. We don't have to do all those preliminary exercises that many Buddhists do because you already are serving and giving and loving each other. Freedom from your emotional selves, from the concept of the I, of your egos, is what produces liberation. Attachment to all the things to do of your bodily nature is what we call imprisonment. You create karma that way. When you forget yourself and simply give, you, well, you create a different type of karma and the karma of liberation, the karma of enlightenment, the karma of joy and bliss. The heart's joy only manifests with the awakening consciousness of compassionate service. There's no other way. And bliss at this stage is still beyond most of you because you're still battling with compassionate service. But bliss comes as a consequence of awakening to the energy of the heart in the head, the downpouring of monadic potency. In Buddhism, it's just simply called Dhammakaya. 
or bodhicitta, the enlightenment mind, liberating mind. We're not interested in producing more karma for ourselves. We're not interested in manifesting the actions that's going to cause us to have to incarnate again and again and again and again because of our stupidities, because of our selfishness, because of what we take from others, what we don't give, because of our separativeness, our angers, our spite, our critical mind. The blows we cause upon others because of our selfish thinking. We're interested in cleansing our karma, passing on quickly to higher realms, higher domains, into the domain of enlightenment. We've all liberated beings. We'll incarnate again, yes, as great bodhisattvas, serving all. And there's no other way to become enlightened but to be servant of all. That is clear in all of the world's religions, though I'm not too sure about the Muslim. I haven't studied that in depth, but certainly in Christianity and in Buddhism, Hinduism. Think about this concept of sacrificial service, producing a bell sound of a group such as this. One note rings out into the universe, reverberating through and through, and causing everything to manifest in a harmonious rapture. It's what the bell symbolises. It's feminine space. The masculine doje, the power that organizes space into forms. If you ever look at a bell, you'll see at the base doje after doje after doje after doje after doje after doje after doje. On top is surmounted by a doje on top of what Jenny is a woman's face, prajna paramita all-encompassing wisdom is what she symbolises. All of the Buddhist doctrines crowned by, sometimes translated as the thunderbolt, the five rays of the Buddhas of wisdom, of the Jiani Buddhas, the Buddhas of meditation. And everything that they symbolise, such as the five fingers of our hands, the fact that we are built in the number five, the five states of consciousness five basic facial orifices there's seven altogether but they can also be arranged in terms of five when just looking at the face itself and looking at this ajna this little canopy here is the makara what is the makara? it's a water beast it symbolises the conquering of the emotions here we have it on the purba, on the side. Out of its mouth we have serpents. There are three blades to this ritual dagger. Why three? Because you're conquering past, present and future. There's three times. Ida, Pingala, 
Shishumna. The three poisons must be mastered by the being that controls the watery element because these serpents are either serpents of poison, the most important one is ignorance, or the transmuted poison is ambrosia. It awakens the kundalini fire, troubles up your spine into the head and produces what people call liberation. Not that easy to achieve. Every nadi, every channel, must have the blue of the energy of the heart protecting it so that the fire can go up and not burn into the organs or into the brain and cause insanity. So, past, present and future, the watery element. The figure on top, with three different faces normally, is Mahakara, Lord of Time. He governs all time and space. And on the top, sometimes there's a Buddha, normally it's a Buddha's knot, and sometimes it's a horse head, which is here, Griva. And the horse here represents the mind itself, but it's also the symbol of Avalokitesvara, the Lord of Compassion. You've seen pictures of him with his thousand arms, the prototype of all bodhisattvas. There's many other things to do with, to do with these knots, and then there are five levels of the purva itself, which are the five planes of perception, the five aspects of mind, the five elements, the five dhyani buddhas, the five poisons that need to be transmuted by the wisdoms or into the wisdoms of the, the buddhas. This particular statue here is the deity of the purba. You can see basically the bottom half of him is from, from the waist down is the purba. It starts off the makara, basically where the solar plexus centre is. And it sticks into a corpse. The corpse really symbolises the cliches, the desire minds, the appetites of lust and all of those things. The bardo states, the, the states of human transmigration, samsara, and it says it has conquered and mastered all of that with the fiery potency of the kundalini fire entering into it. There are the versions of Vajrakila Huruka with four legs and dancing. Vajrakula Huruka here is in Yabyum position with his consort, signifying non-duality, the non-dual wisdom. Male and female aspects within consciousness have all been fused into one. All the masculine, feminine polarity within you has been integrated into a coital interrelationship on all levels of your expression, producing the highest bliss. That's what this symbol in 
Buddhism that you often see where the male and the female are sitting, where the female sitting on the male and they dancing together. Non-dual wisdom. Not male, not female. No duality, one. And that one is bliss. And this is what you're trying to obtain. Not me, not you, not this, not that. Just the all. Sea of, I would use the term, blue consciousness, bliss. Dharmakaya. Surrounded by the flames. Um, Chitta vritti. Chitta is mind. The flames of the substance of mind that have been transformed. There's no longer your petty thoughts of what you're going to do when you wake up and I'm going to work or or you want to do this or maybe I'll watch TV or maybe I'm going to read this book maybe I'm going to go and, you know, eat some food. It's all gone. What's left is just the burning blaze of enlightenment consciousness. One-pointed ideation. Again, Vajakila Haruka has three faces, like in the Purba, because it's the three aspects of time that he has mastered, that he has conquered, the past, the present and the future. It's all the eternal now. All oneness and consciousness. And, of course, sees all of the third eye. Generally, if the purba is drawn properly, the three faces will be different. Like in this one here, three different sized teeth to symbolize the three aspects of time. The triple aspect of the energies that rise, Ida, material world, the feminine principle, Pingala, consciousness or space, the masculine principle, and Shashumna, that fiery energy that unites them both into one flame. They hold various implements and one needs to look at what they hold and study the symbolism of the implements. Flails sometimes, choppers, daggers. In this particular case he always, he, with his um, three arms, he holds his consort and at the same time points the purba down towards material space, which he has mastered. They are in wrathful embrace. There's nothing gentle here. They ra- this is wrathful deity. Why are they wrathful? Because everything that is to do with material plane livingness to them um, must be ferociously transformed into enlightenment consciousness, into the spaciousness of this non-dual bliss. Wherever there is a negative thought, it is trampled upon, it is consumed in this dance of fire. When you have the four-legged virgin, then the four legs relate to the four petals of the base of spine center. This this particular deity here is explained in detail in my book, Cellular Consciousness, somewhere around chapter 17. 
chapter got to do with um, Vajakura Haruka and the Janana Dakinis. The Janana Dakinis are the wisdom Dakinis. There's five of them, of course. So all of this has got to do with the development of wisdom from the base of the spine all the way through to the head centre. And in my book, it points out that this deity turns the petals of the head lotus as it's awakening with the fiery effect of its embrace. From the base of the spine through the head lotus here, all the fires are being liberated. Most of you have to think of the fact you look at yourselves as this fleshy body full of sinew and bone and blood and somehow you think that the brain is the organ of thinking of thought and it's not. You escape this thing that's called a body when you die. You look it down with some sort of disdain and say, what's that? Go into the bardo space, the astral plane and so forth. But this is the average human being, they just look down. But how is it when you're an enlightened being? How is it when you're working to liberate consciousness all the time, produce these flames? Because what you really are in the Sanskrit is called Manasaputra. Manas meaning mind, form of mind. And the element of mind is fire. You're really a fiery being. Energy is all there is. And the energy of mind is fire. Is it that most of you are producing cloudy thoughts with your fire as the watery emotions come to it? Explodes into steam? Is it full of smoke? Occluded with all sorts of particulate matter? Or is it becoming more and more fiery, like a furnace? What about incandescent? What about like a tungsten lamp burning? What about like a sun blazing? Where are you at? What stage of development of the fires of what you really are is being developed in you? How far are you away from that blazing sun, that radiant luminosity of which the texts speak that an enlightened mind is? How watery are you instead? Waters are the emotions. So when you begin to look at Buddhist texts, the tantras, as explained in my books, for instance, it's all about how to transform this corpuscular matter, this watery substance that's of your emotions into blazing, luminescent sun. And you see it in these pictures all around you. The tankas with the radiant auras around the Buddhas. Even in the Christian arts you have the halo around the saints. Even they understood what the path to enlightenment really meant. Because the stronger your light, the easier it is for beings to see. It doesn't take a great clairvoyance to see the intensity of the luminosity of a great one. 
Of course, the average person won't see it, but certainly disciples will. So it's important for you to get out of the concept of thinking that this physical body that you're residing in, that your mind is inhabiting, is somehow the real you. You're transforming all of that into a blazing sun. Or you're trying to. Energy is all there is. And consciousness molds that energy into a form. The form is your brain consciousness. The brain is only a mechanism that anchors consciousness into the physical organism. You see of your eyes and your touch with your hands, but what is it that you're really thinking with? It's not just the sum of the images that you've gained in this life. It's much, much more than that. And where is it that you are going to with your mind development? Often with the Buddhists, they use this type of deity. This one here is more tantric, but they have a concept of Dharmapala, um, a protective deity. And so they'll have a, they normally have these little chuckles, these little images on cards that are painted with their specific deity to protect them. And they do the mantras and the meditations and the prayers relating to invoking that entity. This also could be the subject of a Dharmapala, a chakli card, for instance, that is used to visualise as a protective deity. Now, for the average Buddhist that is not a yogi, that's all that it does. They try to evoke the power of the fire, of the haruka, the transformation, formative effect of the haruka, and to try to emulate its compassionate stance. But for somebody who is practising yogi, they are meditating upon every symbol, the meaning of a, the difference between a four-pronged Vajra and an eight-pronged Vajra, for instance. The difference is here we have the Dhyani Buddhas in the eight-pronged Vajra or the nine with the central one. We have the consorts implied as well, all the eight directions in space and all the significance of the meaning of those. The whole Vajra here is based in the mantra Om Mani Pumi Hum. There's the Om in the centre, which you hold... Um, the money is the next layer, which is the jewel, and then we come the Padma, or the Pemi, and then the Hum, um, which is the way of the heart exploding, are these five rays, each coming out of a Makara's mouth, the mouth of the water god sends out a ray into space, of accomplishment. Here you have the Makara going down. Here you have the Makara going up. One is to conquer, the other is having conquered, having mastered. If I showed you some of my diagrams of the chakras 
I would show you how the Vajra links with the head lotus and how it turns the petals. But that's a, a vast subject and another subject altogether. I have in my little note here the Makara, the vehicle of the Makara is Varuna, the god of the waters. Another symbol that's quite important that you've often seen in the Buddhist art is the Kapala. There she's holding a a Kapala. A Kapala is the skull cap. And the skull cap is technically filled with blood. It's the the blood of, um, well, again, there's this energy of blood cosmically, or their symbolism, of course, is the bodhicitta, of the compassionate aspect of enlightenment consciousness. It means that your whole head has been carved up and you drink its substance. It produces bliss. I remember myself when I was 25, and that was many, many years ago, one of these harukas came to me and gave me a skull cap to drink. And so I took it and drank it. And it actually was one of the most blissful experiences of my life because then my whole mind exploded into spacious universe, the deep blue of space. So this skull cap is the Amrita, the nectar of enlightenment, the heart's blood which you drink in order to be enlightened. Symbolism of blood is all the way through the religions. Christianity, of course, the the blood of the Christ um, shed for the salvation of the many. Blood is what the heart itself pumps out. It's the consciousness of the heart. It's spaciousness itself. It's the all all that is cosmos. How far you can think to the furthest extent that your mind can go in every direction in space and time, multidimensionally, that is the skullcap. That is the heart's blood. Pumping out the rhythms of the universe I normally say om, 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 om. And of course you can listen to your own heart and it's a thump, thump, thump. It's the same thing. The mantra om mani padme hum is really, in many ways, that particular rhythm of the heart beating out the sound of compassion for all sentient beings. One of the other things that I suppose should never be forgotten about the Buddhist imagery and you can see it also in Egyptian and so forth, is the lotus blossom. Buddhas are normally seen sitting on lotus blossom. The lotus is the chakras. Four-petal chakra at the base of the spine, the six-petal chakra, the sacral centre, the ten-petal chakra, the um, solar plexus centre, the twelve-petal chakra, the heart, the sixteen, and you know the throat, and so forth, until you get to the full crown of the 1056, or symbolically the 1000 petal lotus. And that is the whole foundation of being and non-being. In many ways it's the 
um, beginning and ending of all that is. Everything comes out of a chakra and is resolved back into one. Most of my books has really got to do, all of them in many ways, has got to do with chakras, with the lotus blossoms and how they unfold in time and space, the meanings of the petals, how the head lotus works, all aspects of consciousness and consciousness awakening as a consequence. And a lot of it has got to do with the relationship of the tall petal lotus, which is the heart centre, to the ten petal lotus, which is the solar plexus centre, and via the intermediate centres of the splenic centres, which I call spleen one and two. And over and over and over again, I give many different um, explanations of these chakras when I'm interpreting the tantras of Buddhism. And of course it relates to the 12 signs of the zodiac and the 10 signs of zodiac if we need to go into that and so forth. Everywhere I look, I see chakras. What I see when I'm looking at a group such as this, I see the petals of a chakra unfolding. And from each chakra comes a line of energy, which we call nadis. And each energy, each nadi has five different pranas in it, the qualities of the five elements, the five wisdoms eventually of the Buddhas of, of meditation. When you get a nadi that crosses with another nadi, then you get the appearance of a chakra. They produce a flower, a floral form. And the more nadis that cross in one point, there you get a larger and larger and larger chakra. They're the conduits of energy in this planet, in this solar system, in this cosmos. And in um, the Druidic religion in England, for instance, those lines of energy are called ley lines. In the dragon lines in the Chinese and so forth. The Aboriginal people, people that have the vision, work with these lines of energy on this planet. They produce their sacred sites upon them, such as Stonehenge, such as all Avebury, all of the great monuments and the great temples, such as um, Giza in Egypt. Wherever you have one of those ancient temples, there you have a point of power where lines of energies intersect to produce a chakra upon which the temple is built and associated with the chakra, the type of chakra it is, then the type of religion, the type of worship manifests according to it in order to utilise the power of the earth, the power of the divas associated with it. When we work with hierarchy and where we go um, with hierarchy, we don't use our minds and say, we're just going to build a building over there. We seek out the sacred places, the chakras. You're organised according to, by hierarchy, according to the types of petals that you really represent within a mandala. And the mandala is the chakra which you embody.
when there's eight of you, and I'm very, very thankful when there's only eight of you, or at least eight of you, then I see splenic centre number two manifesting. The spleen may evolve into a diaphragm centre, also an eight-petal lotus. And it could manifest into the higher spleen, or it can develop into a solar plexus centre, great power in a solar plexus centre, and hopefully into a heart, eventually. It can only develop into a heart when there are 12 heart-born sons and daughters. In other words, beings that are functioning, as I started off, with true compassionate stance, when every being is singing out the note of the part of the orchestra, of the band of spiritual service work that they're playing. You can see that when I think of a chakra, I'm thinking of those that are integrated, harmoniously working as a unity. When there's no unity there, how can the petals function? You have dormancy. And we're not talking about a closed flower. What we want is the flower to open, to bud, or the bud and then to open and to show its full glory and radiance and perfume and all the rest of it to the sun, to the life, to all sentient beings. A flower, after all, exists to give. It produces the seed of the future. It produces the perfume that attracts the bees that make the honey and so forth. It brightens up the landscape. You can see, therefore, yes, each one of you can be an individual little flower that's quite minute, or you can join your forces to become quite a big flower. So you can start with a eight-petal lotus or even a four-petal lotus, which is a basis spine centre, and then you can grow to a thousand-petal lotus, which is the head lotus. Hopefully, as the decades evolve, the disciples will be around that are manifesting this heart response to service work and group integration. That will be a full head lotus unfolding or manifesting all over the planet. That's what becoming enlightened is all about. Not as individuals, but only as a group. Sound out your note. Play the orchestra that you are in harmony and in accord according to the type of instrument that you represent. Make the note clear and let it resonate out through the space, through the ethers, to influence many myriads of beings in many dimensions of perceptions. That is the way of enlightenment. Never yourself, always the other. Always for the other. And all of that is symbolised in all of this Buddhist art. Most of you should read more when you've got the time and it's best to read rather than to chat. Meditate more, cleanse your minds. Don't waste too much time in emotional solar plexus into relationship. Group harmony is good, but then get on with service work. <laughs>